You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. This week, we are continuing our study on the life of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Grab your Bible and get ready to dive into God's Word together. Look, this is the second sermon in our series on Elijah. I don't know if you remember um, last week, but you, you guys remember, some, I remember when I was younger, I watched the show Lost. Some of you remember Lost. Lost always began with the phrase, previously on Lost, or I don't know if you go and you do your Stranger Things binge watch on the bottom corner, there's always a, there's always a skip recap. Uh, don't skip this recap. Uh, I want to give you a, a recap of what previously happened if you weren't here last week or you just forgot by Wednesday because you like to do that. So here we go. Last week, uh, we met Elijah. He kind of appeared out of nowhere. The first thing that we learn about him is that he is confronting, as as a prophet, he is confronting the king. King's name is Ahab, and the king of of Judah is is a bad guy. He has been one of the worst kings ever. In fact, he kind of is described as the award winner of worst king in history, according to the scriptures. He married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was a Baal worshiper. Baal was the rival deity from another land. She, because he married her, brought her god into the land, and they started to build temples and uh, worship places to Baal and his girlfriend Asherah. This was not well regarded by Yahweh, the one true God, and so he sends Elijah. Elijah comes and says, listen, what I need you to know, Ahab, is that until I say so, there will be neither dew nor rain coming on the earth. Dew nor rain because uh, Baal was the storm god. And so Yahweh's basically coming to them and saying, oh, you guys want to trust the storm god to provide for you what you need? Well, I'm going to cut him off at the knees and prove to you he doesn't even exist. So no dew, no rain until I say it's time, says, says Elijah. Ahab, like most kings, is not thrilled with that kind of language toward him. And so the Lord takes Elijah and he puts him near a brook in the middle of nowhere. And then he takes these ravens and he delivers food by the great, you know, um, by the great Uber Eats ravens. And they deliver this food to them, meat and bread every day. And the, the, the brook provides water. It's a miracle. The Lord can provide even in the midst of drought and famine, but eventually the, the, the brook dries up. And so what we've got is Elijah sitting in the middle of a dry, barren, what they call a wadi, a brook in those days, and he doesn't know what he's doing now. No water, there's no food. Where do we go now, Lord? And that's where we pick this story up in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse, verse 8. There's three things in this passage we're going to learn about the character of God, okay? Three things about the character of God that's revealed as the Lord actually takes care of a, of, of a widow. So let's, uh, let's start with the first one. Uh, the first thing we learn is our God is in control of even the most difficult situations, our God is in control of even the most difficult situation. So let's look at verse 8 of 1 Kings 17. Then, all right, so based upon everything I just said, then, sitting there in the middle of his, his uh, creek that he used to have water but not anymore, and the word of the Lord came to him, thankfully, I'm sure. 
And the Lord says, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and I want you to live there. Now I'm circling Zarephath and Sidon because um, these are no ordinary places. Zarephath is like a, a city, Sidon would be kind of like the state or the country, the area. Now the reason I'm pointing this out is because we've read about Sidon already in the previous verses. I just want to point out where we, where we read it. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. When we met Ahab, and he was described as the worst king ever, this is what it, was, it said, and as if it had been a light thing for him, Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, who previously was the really, really bad king, the son of Nebat, he, Ahab, took for his wife that Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the who? The Sidonians. The Sidonians who are from Sidon. He took for him uh, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and they went and served Baal and, and worshipped him. So here's what I'm pointing out. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. He's basically, the Lord is basically saying, hey, Elijah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to rise up, and I want you to go over to the heart of Baal worship, and I want you to do some stuff that, uh, I'm gonna, where I'm going to prove that I'm the only one true God, and Baal is not. This is basically like if the Lord came to you and said, uh, I want you to go to, uh, to, to preach to the Mormons, and so I'm sending you to Salt Lake City. I, I want you to go and proclaim my greatness to the Muslims, so I'm sending you to Mecca. I want you to go and correct the sins of evangelicalism, and so you're going to Wheaton, right? <laughs> it's going to the heart of it. So, um, behold, you're going to see me provide for you there, just like you did by this creek. So, behold... I have, look at this word, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now here's the question I'm going to ask and I want you to try to answer in your mind as we walk through the rest of this little short passage. Does the widow know she's commanded? The word commanded actually means appointed. You know, you know like, um, the idea is uh, the Lord's kind of like, yeah, I played, I played uh, travel agent for you. I sorted all the stuff out. Okay, I got, I, got, I got meals prepared. It's all inclusive, this place, with this widow. I, I've appointed her as your concierge, Elijah. So you don't need to plan anything. Just head over there. You'll find her. It'll all be good. The question I'm asking you is, when Elijah finds her, is she at all aware that she's been commanded? Okay, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he, he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came, when he came to the gate, now the cities in those days uh, were walled off because you didn't want invaders showing up in the middle of, of the night and attacking you while you were asleep. And so you would wall off your city. Uh, the only time that the gate would be open and it was the main thoroughfare in and out of the city, you didn't have like six gates. So the only time that that gate was opened, it was during the day. And it was the busiest place. Now you can imagine, 
Everybody's going in and out. It is the main thoroughfare in the city. And so they had markets there. So when it says you came to the gate of the city, please do not picture that she's just this only person standing there waiting for him. There are people everywhere, all Baal worshipers, worshiping Baal. But behold, just like the Lord said, there, there was a, a widow there and she was gathering sticks. Um, I point out that this is a widow because in our culture, you know, if you're a widow, you're usually well taken care of. You know, you've got a nice, nice house that you inherited from your spouse or your husband. And, and in those days, the most exposed to any kind of socioeconomic change were the orphans and widows. They did not have the means to take care of themselves. And so if there was any change in the economy, the first people to feel it, the most devastating effect would be on the widow. So we're in the middle of a famine and a drought. And here is this, here is this widow. She's got nothing. And she's there gathering this word sticks means actually twigs. Crowds of people, and she's walking around and picking up whatever little twigs she can find. This is kind of an odd move on her part. What's she gathering them for? Well, he called to her. And he said, um, I, I, want you, I want you to bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Uh, you guys ever walked through a, um, a doorway, you know, like uh, into the store? and uh, someone coming behind you, and the person behind you like has a stroller. What do you do when a person's coming behind you with a stroller, and you're going through the door in front of them? Yeah, okay, so I feel bad that I need to inform you of this, but like you hold the door, yeah? I mean, <laughs> right? Like, okay, what if I don't hold the door? What if I know they're there, and I just open it up, and I go, and it hits the stroller, what, do everybody, what does everybody around me think about me? <laughs> you jerk. Like, how rude. That's the way people would think in those days if someone asked you for a cup of water, if a sojourner, if a traveler asked you for a cup of water in the desert and you didn't give it to them. The cultural expectation is, hey, I'd like some water. Your job, hospitality-wise, was, sure, I'll give you some water. If you don't give you some water, you are like the worst of people. So Elijah, he strikes up this conversation with him. He's thirsty. He's come from a trip. Can I have a little water in a vessel that I might drink? And of course, her answer is, yeah, of course. And so as she was going, she took off to do that, to bring it. He called to her. So she's walking away, and he says, oh, by the way, can you also bring me a morsel of bread? This is a problem, because what, like, why is she gathering sticks? She's gathering sticks for a fire, and she's gonna, she's got nothing. This woman's got nothing, and as you'll see, he asks her, okay, can you get me this morsel of bread? Now, normally, she would be like, yeah, sure, water and bread, that's the bare minimum, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, I, I have nothing baked. Look, I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, this much, and a tiny little bit of oil. And now, 
I'm gathering a couple of these twigs that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and then, and then die. Look, man, I would love to help you. Water is one thing, but if you're asking for some food, I don't got it. In fact, I only have enough for me and my, my kid. So, getting back to my question, does she sound like someone who has been commanded by the Lord to care for Elijah? Is she at all aware that the Lord had commanded her, had appointed her as the concierge for the prophet? To put it in a more, I guess, theological way, does it sound like this is a woman who knows that her circumstance is part of a plan meant to display God's power and provision for Elijah? That she somehow fits in the wider framework of God's eternal plan to show his glory to everyone? And the answer is, of course not. She doesn't seem like that at all. So why does Elijah, why, why does the author use the word appointed then? And the reason is that our God is in control of even the most difficult situations. That that language is stuck in there on purpose so that you and I, as we read it, recognize that this is no mistake. This set of circumstances, this widow's situation Elijah talking to her, even though she knows nothing about it, even though she's down to her absolute last morsel, ready to die, even though that's all true, God has appointed her for this moment. <laughs> He's got a purpose in mind. Guys, I'm gonna show you this really cool thing. As you've, so you take a step back in a lot of these passages and you can actually see kind of the, the author's trajectory, kind of what they're trying to argue through the whole thing. Uh, so I'll show you. There are three stories that come back to back to back and they each one kind of climb in their severity or their impact or the way that they reveal God and his power. So here's the first story, right? We've got this widow and she's gonna provide food. I don't, sorry, I totally am giving it away. It, she, she actually, she gets the food. So... He, she provides this food, and we, we look at that and we say, wow, that's pretty remarkable. The Lord can provide food to anybody in the midst of a drought. Cool. The next story is actually about the widow's son. And her son dies. He's supposed to die here, but he dies here. The widow's son is then resurrected. In fact, it's kind of a funky scene where Elijah lays on top of him, which is the way you heal everyone, right? Doctors, yeah? You just guys go into that thing and you're like, mm, transfer of power. So he gets resurrected. That's kind of cool. I mean, that's a little cooler than food, right? Seriously, if you went from, hey, look, this guy got provided food to, hey, this guy, he was rose from the dead, you're kind of like, yeah, that's a bigger deal. And then you get the third scene and it's actually Elijah at Mount Carmel in his full-blooded fight with Baal. Yahweh versus Baal, seven o'clock. Hands will be thrown. 
And then, you, those of you who know the story, you know that God comes with this, I mean, the, the prophets of Baal march around and march around and march around, and Baal doesn't answer because he's dead. Elijah mocks them. Maybe he's in the bathroom. No joke, that's actually in the Bible. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Yell louder. And then Elijah just stands up, he prays a prayer, and the Lord shows up. They cut all the heads off of the prophets of Baal. Yay, God. That's a bigger deal than the resurrection, right? Do you see there's like this intensifying of glory, of power. God is not just the one who can provide food for a widow. He's the one who can resurrect the widow's son. In fact, he's the one who can go toe-to-toe with the baddest God on the block and knock him out. So this whole, my point is, this whole scene, Elijah's whole ministry at the very front end is all set up by a sovereign God. I'll show you something else. Okay, so same thing happens with Pharaoh. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this God that I should obey him? And then they go 10 rounds, right? When in the middle of the plagues, the 10 plagues, uh, when Moses, or when the Lord tells Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, right in the middle of the plagues, he says, okay, here's, here, I'm gonna tell Pharaoh why this is happening and for what purpose this whole thing is taking place. Because you know the Lord could just like disband the molecules of Pharaoh's body by like this, right? Right, he could rip him from limb to limb. Just like, just like this, it's not hard. The Lord's not like, oh, this Pharaoh, he's such a big opponent. In fact, the Lord has to strengthen, harden his heart so he keeps getting back up because the Lord pops him with one of the, with one of the, the plagues and he falls down. He's like, are you, you okay? And Pharaoh's like, ah, tap out, tap out. The Lord's like, no, 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 you want to fight. Back up you get. Strengthens him. So the Lord is setting the whole thing up. Why? Why would the Lord possibly set this whole thing up? Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 9, 13, I want you to rise up early in the morning and I will present yourself before Pharaoh. And when you get there, I want you to say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, same thing he said many times, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself and on your servants and on your people. Why? Uh, so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. That's what this is about, Pharaoh. Because by now, I, I could have put out my hand and struck you with COVID. And, and your people with pestilence, right? I mean, and you would have been cut off from, from the whole earth. But, the reason I haven't done this, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. What purpose? To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This, this whole, Pharaoh, this whole thing is a massive setup. I've propped you up. I've brought you into the position that you're the Pharaoh so we could have this fight so that when I destroy you in front of everyone, everyone as far away from the east as from the west will say there is one God who's alive. 
You see, though, that the purpose for history is for the glorification of our God. Look, let me, let me do a little theology with you for just a second, okay? What is God's grand purpose in the world? If you were to back up and you were to ask the question, what in the world is God after? Why create? Why put them in a garden? Why the fall? Why the cross? Why my life? Why the future the way it is? Why, 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 why? You ever ask, no, no, nobody asked that question before ever, theologically or personally? Why, 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 why? Like what God is doing in the world. Ready? Here's the, here's the answer. The Lord is glorifying his name. So, so, follow, so follow this for, for just a second. There's a professor a number of years ago I, I, I met, and he was trying to make the argument that, you know, the fall in the garden happened, and uh, God had this plan A where everything was going to be great, but Adam and Eve screwed it up, and so now we're in plan B. I remember thinking to myself, that is the most ridiculous thing. So, so basically, the goal God has right now is plan A was going great, but now plan B is the way it is, and God's prime directive, his goal right now in plan B is just to save as many people as he can. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible actually says, no, 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 there's no plan B, there's a plan A. There's a plan A, and this, this is it. The goal of God, his prime directive, don't you like this Star Trek language? Come on. His prime directive is not salvation of people. He is not trying to save people as his prime goal. He saves people because it serves his prime goal, which, which, is, which is what? To glorify his name. It's all over the Bible. Uh, it's all, all over the place. Uh, so we've got um, Romans. Chapter 11, verse 36, kind of the culmination of one of Paul's arguments in Romans. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. So if you ask Paul, what's the point of everything? Well, from him and through him and to him are all things. God made it, God sustains it, and God's glorified by it. He is, he is gaining glory. So how do you get glory? Well, just think about your own life. How, how do I glorify my wife? No, no, it's Father's Day. How does she glorify me? Right? How does she glorify me? Well, she would point out the aspects of my character that are praiseworthy. Yes? There are so many. <laughs> Jeff, you're smart and handsome and hard to kill. And... Right, like she'd go down the list and she'd say, okay, I, I see your character displayed in the way you treat your kids. I see your character displayed in the way you love me. I see your character displayed in how you go to work and you work hard. Like, see your character, see your character. And so then she boasts, in fact, about how great her husband is because, because I have my character, which is awesome, displayed to all. Now, I'm not as awesome as God. There are aspects of my character that aren't good to see, but what about God? Are there any aspects of the character of God when revealed that are negative things? Is there anything that God does that does not demand praise from all who look on? Well, no. So how is God glorified? 
any time his character is displayed, God is glorified. So anytime you see the power of God, we give glory to God. Whenever you see the grace of God, you give glory to God. Whenever you see the judgment of God, you give glory to God. They're great, they're great, they're great. The love of God, glory to God. All of them. Not just the ones we like, but all of them. I'm telling you that all of history is set up to display the character of God so that he might receive glory. Why has God made everything? Well, listen, if there was no cross, you would never know grace, would you? If there was no cross, you would never see judgment. If there was no hell, there would be no judgment. If the, if you, the universe didn't operate the way it does, you would not see the full, what we call manifold, power and mercy and grace and glory of God. You would not see all of it unless the world is worked out the way it is. So in other words, the whole thing is a setup for the glory of God. So you say, oh, come on, I'm done with theology. Okay, let's bring it back down to earth. Guys, what do you think is happening in your life right now? Like, why do you think that you're in the situation you're in? Could, could, it, be, could it be that the Lord has appointed you there? Yeah, but he didn't tell me. I know, sometimes he doesn't. Why would he appoint me? Uh, so that by delivering you through this, his covenant person, he would be glorified by all who see. This is no mistake what you're dealing with. It's an opportunity for the living God to show up. And show up he will. Second, second, our God provides what his rivals promise. Verse 12. I teach you theology class. You should come to my theology class. I'll yell at you more. <laughs> so we go back one verse, okay? We've heard this one already. She said, as the Lord your God lives. She said, what? I mean, he's asked for the food. She's gonna give him the water, hospitable food. She wants to give him the food because of hospitality, but she can't. Like, I'm going to collect the sticks and die. As the Lord your God lives. This is a throwaway line, as the Lord your God lives. It's like, I swear to God, right? It, it, I really mean it, is, is what it means in the, in the culture. <laughs> and yet, she says something about Yahweh here that the author wants you to take note of. In her little throwaway line, saying, man, I really mean this. You need to believe me. She says, as the Lord your God lives. See, what's the problem with Baal? Do you guys remember the story of Baal? Baal. So Baal is, uh, the, the way that the worship of him worked, like I said last week, was in the dry season, Baal was dead. Mot had killed him. The God of death had killed him. In the rainy season, he comes back to life. The way you, you get him back to life is by worshiping. You know, beat yourself, march around a circle and hum, visit the temple prostitutes, all that stuff. You've got to get him back to life. So here is Elijah, sent to the heart of Baalism. 
where Baal is supposed to be providing the storm and the crops and the food and the water. And here's one of his worshipers who does none of it because Baal is dead. And when Elijah says to her, go get me some food, she says, as the Lord your God lives. Hmm. You speak more than what you know, my dear. As the Lord your God lives, I I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now, look, I'm gathering a couple sticks and I'm going in, prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Because Baal's not shown up. We've worshipped him a lot and he hasn't. So Elijah said to her, look, I don't want you to fear. Which she would respond by going, what are you talking about, don't fear? Like, don't say that. My God is dead. I mean, don't fear. There's no protection. But he says, go and do as you have said. But, but first, <laughs> I want you to make me a little cake. So do, get me some first and then give it to you and your son and bring it back to me. And afterwards, you can make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, you know the one you just said lives? The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. No, 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 I just go and do it. And my God will provide all the time because that's what he does because he's alive. Look, most of this story from this point to the battle on Mount Carmel is basically Yahweh saying, Baal, come out, come out wherever you are. Ahab has turned away from me and wants to worship you because you provide apparently the rain. So come on, let's fight. Let's you show up. Tell him that you're the big bad God. And there's no answer. And there's no answer because Yahweh is the one who provides what his rivals merely promise. Only Yahweh is alive. Only Yahweh provides. Only Yahweh cares. There is no idol. There is no other God. There is nothing in all creation that can do for you and me what Yahweh can. Doesn't stop us from running off to them though, does it? Language of idolatry is really foreign to us for some reason. Tim Keller in his great book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he he said this. This is a great quote. Just... Listen to his argument. He says, to contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. The Bible contains vivid descriptions of the cultures of the ancient world. Each city worshiped its favorite deities and built shrines around their images for worship. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different, though, from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether those shrines are office towers or spas and gyms or studios and stadiums where sacrifices must be made, $10 beer, in order for... Okay, you and I are on the same page, right? And then the rest of them, not so much. Sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement 
But these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. See, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Baal, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. See, in ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. Look, here's what he's trying to say. I want you to imagine for a minute, if it's possible, that you value the praise of people more than anything else in the world. Which basically is what all of us are after, right? I mean, isn't it? Like, why do you want to be beautiful? So everybody calls you beautiful. Why do you want to be wealthy? So everyone notices that you're wealthy and have a nicer house. Gives you power. And everyone can bow down to you and you be the top of the stage. Why do you want success? So that you're better than the next guy who doesn't have as much success. Every one of these things is essentially trying to achieve for us the praise of everybody else around us. So let's imagine for a minute that you, that you want the praise of people. And you work like crazy to get it. You'll, you'll do anything for your beauty. You'll, you'll do anything for the money. You'll do anything for the success. You'll do anything for your kid to be good at the sports. Because when he reaches that level, that high level, all the other parents who have been bad-mouthing his ability to throw all these years will know, <laughs> in your face, we're, we're better, we're important, we're valuable. Because that's what you want, right? That's ultimately what all of us want. I want somebody to tell me I'm, I'm valuable. See, in those days, what they wanted more than anything was food. You and I don't have that problem. Seriously, we get frustrated if there's like three versions of peanut butter. How dare they? So we don't want for food, but what do we want for? Meaning, value. We want somebody to come along and tell us that our lives matter. Who we are matters. So we look for that in the eyes of everybody else around us. And the way we try to get it is, you know, beauty and success and fame. Why do you want to be famous? So everyone else talks about me. I'm on the lips of everyone. So let's imagine that we pursue the praise of people. Here's what's going to happen if you pursue the praise of people. If you get it, and only if you do, Right? If you get it, there will be this feeling that comes upon you for the briefest moment. If you win the spelling bee, everyone for this one moment will think, oh, you're the best speller in the world. And you'll feel affirmed, I am important. You'll win the NBA title. And everyone will say, good for you. And then that reporter, that pesky little reporter, will come around the corner after your five minutes of soaking in the champagne. And they'll say, what about next year? And you'll think, oh my word, in order to stay on the top, I gotta keep running. So you keep running and you run 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 and you run. If you get it, if you're the most beautiful, you will have beauty this long until the babies come. 
Or you say, oh no, I'm gonna beat that. Yeah, but there's only so much Botox in the world, isn't there? At some point, gravity wins. It's fleeting. It's short. So you gotta keep running and keep running and keep running. That's if you get it. If you don't get it, you'll crucify yourself. All you'll ever say to yourself is, I cannot believe how bad I am at this. I cannot believe how, how insignificant and invaluable I am in the eyes of everybody else. I stink, I'm terrible, I'm awful. Because this is what it's like to serve the idol. This is what it's like to try to get something from the dead God. It cannot give it to you. Doesn't stop you for a moment running after it, though. That's if you seek the praise of people as your greatest God. But, but, what if instead you say, well, I'm going to seek the praise of Yahweh. Well, how many people get the praise of Yahweh? Anyone who has faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved and affirmed in his righteousness. What do you mean? I just... I don't have to earn it? No. In fact, by failing, you get it. So can you fail? Yes. You get it. So I will always have value. Even though I can't perform. Yes, you'll always get it. Yeah, but for how long? What if I, can, what if I fail later? Doesn't matter. You didn't get it by performing. You don't lose it by not performing. You will always have the praise of God because Jesus earned the praise of God and offers it to you as a gift through faith. There's never a moment in your entire life where you can stand there and say, oh, God doesn't like me. He loves and adores you in a covenant way and he will keep you forever and ever. Aren't you so tired? Listen, aren't you so tired of the treadmill? Aren't you? Aren't you exhausted by trying to keep up Chasing that idol that is killing you, even though it's dead. It will never give you what you want. The only one who can provide what the rivals promise is the living God. So, the real question is, like, where are you putting your joy and your meaning? And how is that working out for you? Seriously, I'm, I'm speaking to people who are Christians and profess faith in Jesus and those who don't. Honestly, aren't you tired? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can take my yoke upon you, but it's, my burden's easy. And it's light. I can give you rest for your soul. Do you want rest? It's always on offer to you. All you got to do is turn away from those idols and receive the living God. Look, I have one more here. Um, and it fits nicely into that. Um, our God wants faith. So, so, so how do you respond to the idea that, you know, there's these idols out there and what, what, like, what, do, you do, what do you do now? Well, here's the last part of this, verses 15 and 16. So she's told to go. And, and to do this, and, and she went, and she did as Elijah said. Guys, in this little phrase, there, 
there's so much. You, you're, what you're doing is you have a woman who's gone home and she's making bread. And while she's making the bread, she's thinking to herself, right, so I only have enough to make for Elijah. Or me and my son. So she's making it, and there's a moment at which she starts to walk it out, and she's holding the bread, knowing that this is just enough for Elijah, or for me and my son, and here I am giving it away because this man told me to. Like, it is a full surrender to the word and will of God through the prophet. And she, so she hands it, can you imagine that moment? She's looking at it, thinking to herself, is this the thing I should be doing? Like, are you crazy? Baal's let me down, absolutely. But, like, do I hand it to this guy based upon just the word of his God? Here. And she and he and her household ate for many days. In fact, how? How did they eat for many days? Well, actually, the jar of flour was never spent, and neither did the jug of oil become empty. Can <laughs> you imagine? Can you imagine? I'd play games with this, wouldn't you? You come with the jar of oil and the, and the, and the flour, and you put it in there, and then you, they're empty, and you turn around. Here's that, oops, I forgot some, some more jar. <laughs> Every time you go away, there's more. I prayed for my gas tank to do this, right? Like, you're always coming back. It's amazing. Like, it's amazing. The joy that you see of God just providing, 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 all because you were willing to cast yourself out in true faith on his hands with no caveats. I'm just, I'm here, Lord, take me. You, you, you do know, of course, that our God wants to show us his power and ability, but to see it, uh, we're gonna have to surrender to his will. You won't see it unless you're willing to just throw yourself in his tent, you know, people of Israel, they come across the Jordan River and Joshua's like, hey, we should take that big city, Jericho, this massive walled city, and uh, let's take it by flanking and coming up the backside, we'll build an aerial machine to drop bombs. And the Lord says, yeah, actually, what I want you to do is just walk around it seven times and yell. And he's like, oh, my word, that is not a plan. Yeah, 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 it'll be fine. Don't worry about it, says the angel of the Lord. And you can imagine Joshua walking around here, this is not a good idea, but he's doing it. Lord, it's your people. Walk around, yeah, walls fall down. All right, you don't see the walls fall down unless you walk around the city in faith. Gideon's down there and he's supposed to go and attack the Midianites. He's got 32,000 people, this should be enough. And the Lord says, actually, I need you to get rid of 22,000 of them. What? We need more people to attack, not less. Yeah, yeah, we don't need that many. All right, hey, you, you 22,000, you go. I'm sure he picked, you know, the, the people look like me. Yeah, you can stay home, okay? And then the Lord's like, yeah, I, I think we just need fewer. So go down to the river, and everyone who bends down, like, on our haunches and keeps their head up and cups the water to the mouth, keep those people, but everybody else who kind of laps it like a dog, send them home. And Gideon's watching him. I'm going, come on, come on, come on. Don't lap like a dog. Don't be a dog. Don't be a dog. And most of them are dogs. 300. 300. We're going to beat them with 300? Darn right you are. 
Why? So that the only one in all the world who gets glory for this one is Yahweh. You do, listen, you do see that the Lord has set up in your life all of the circumstances that are there. His desire is to prove to you that he alone is God and not your idol. And so he wants you to jump. And if you don't jump, you won't fly. Have you been on a zip line before? They, they attach you to the zip line you're looking down at hundreds of feet. You're wearing the baby carrier. And they're strapping you up. And you're like, oh, in that moment, right? The bungee jump moment where you're like, and you're like, you sure this works? Yeah, I'm sure it works. We've never killed anyone. Okay. Okay. And then you leap and there's this moment where you're not sure it's going to work out or it's not going to work out. And you start having second thoughts, but you're midair. And then all of a sudden the baby carrier holds and you're flying through the air and you're like, I could do this all day long. That's the, that's the life the Lord wants for you. Not, not one that's gone and empty of any kind of difficulty, but it is one where you fly over all of the troubles and you know, you know that the Lord is demonstrating for you what he can do for you if you give yourself to him wholly. Aren't you tired? Maybe it's just time to jump. I, listen, I don't know where you need to trust the Lord today. I'm sure every single person here needs to trust the Lord in something. I know you do. I know you do. You're here today because he appointed it. And he called me to say, jump. He'll catch you. Just jump. Let me pray. Father, I, I'm, I'm thankful for your word. I'm, I'm thankful for um, a little passage like this that reminds us both of your provision and the faith you call us to in light of that provision. Again, Lord, you can do anything. We say that over and over again. But Lord, make it something that we believe. Make it something that when... Spirit, would you just come and give us the courage... To, to throw ourselves into the hands of the living God regarding, regardless of whatever it is that's in front of us. Let us go home today and to sit there and say, Lord, I, I, don't want, I don't want to chase the idols anymore. I'm so exhausted in it. I just need you. I just need you and I'm willing to do whatever it means. And if that means that I give you my last stuff and put my hand, myself fully in your hands, so be it. So be it. And then God, would you come through and would you exhilarate us with your power that you might receive the glory and that we will report to all our friends and all around that we didn't do it. No, our God did it because he's alive. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.